Hello and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. And I'm one of your hosts, Trey Dedman, and that rustling you hear of cellophane is one of my other hosts, Shane Reeves. Hello. How are you this evening, Trey? I'm doing well, doing well. But, uh, this is Okay, so I'm going to be a little... I'm going to have to work on this tonight. All right. Because we're on an off night, and we're getting ready to play poker. We're on an off night, and we're recording inside for the first time in about two months. Well, it's 94 degrees outside. Well, it's 93 degrees inside. <laughs> yeah, it's only 93 in here, so we had to come inside. If, it, if I thought we could have caught the breeze, it would have been a wash. Yeah. But we have a special guest tonight. Oh. No, semi-special. <laughs> semi-special. And, and only, as, as we were talking about before the show, only the second time that we've had a guest bring notes. That's right. And his name was Jay also. That's right. So welcome back to the show, Jay Drescher. Thank you, gentlemen. He, he, sound, he put on his NPR voice. I was did about you hear to that? say that. Yeah. I, do, did, did you have the voice and become an author, or did you become an author and get the voice? I, I can't answer that. <laughs> now he doesn't want to talk. I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> well, this really just serves... On this week in fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> this really is just serving my own purpose, because when you called today... I said, or you texted this morning and asked if I, if we could record tonight. I said, well, that cuts into my sitting before poker talking to Jay Drescher time. Well, you just make so make I, the best of it. Yeah, so I just reincorporated it so that I can discuss things with Mr. Drescher, same time. But first, we need to light a cigar. We do, and we've both committed faux pas tonight in that we forgot to take our cigars out of the cellophane before we started recording. But I'll let you go first because I'm still finishing my. Cigar from before the show, before I light up my Now, next take a look at that, gentlemen. Oh, no, okay, I'll zip my pants up now. Now, <laughs> take a look at that. That is the Don Pepin Garcia El Presidente. That is a Lancero-ish. It's a little too big ring gauge-wise to be considered it a Lancero. It is a 9.2 by 48. So it's 9.2 inches of wonderful Don Pepin Garcia original tobacco. Nicaraguan Puro. Feel how oily and rich that wrapper is. You can is. actually see the sunlight glistening off of the wrapper. I mean, that, that's just a work of art. It just don't get no better than that. <laughs> I love how Jay's shaking his head as if he just doesn't understand the romanticism of the, of the pre-cigar flourish that Shane has. I'm trying to divorce myself from the phallic nature of him holding and describing that gigantic cigar he's got. As 9.5 inches of goodness? Yeah. <laughs> How'd you know my nickname in high school? Anyway, so Trey, what's your tell, tell me about your somehow so, short and insignificant cigar after that. Yeah, but it's wide, and that's what counts. So that's what they all the, say. One of the <laughs> we're going off the rails quick. It's gonna be tonight. one of those shows, folks. Buckle Sorry. Um, so Shane pulled off something that most people can't tonight. Which is that he said, I've got something in my locker that I didn't care for, but I think that you might. <laughs> that is a really hard way to intro a cigar. But I've got to say, I completely understand where he's coming from. This is this year's Mule Kick. So it's a Crown Heads Four Kicks Mule Kick Limited Edition uh, 19. It is uh, medium bodied, full flavored. It's I haven't had this year's. I really enjoyed the Mule Kick last year. I've seen this year's. I just haven't had a chance to pull the trigger on it yet. I'm really excited to give this a, give this a fair shake. Well, and Jay will be smoking tonight American Spirit Orange Box. So they're not really cigarettes, though. They're all tobacco, ain't they? Uh, that's what it says on the box. 
and all, and they sell them here at the cigar shop, so we we can allow it. Yeah, exactly. It's not like he broke out a pack of Marlboro Lights. So, what do you prefer about cigar cigarettes over cigars? I'm curious. I'm very compulsive. The only time I smoke is when I'm in the cigar shop, and I'll, I can go through a pack of cigarettes in, in a span of a few hours, but when I'm not here, I don't smoke. It's just I'll have a beer, I'll drink, I'll smoke a cigarette, and I'll light another one. I think it's the, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> I get a little buzz from them. Is it, but is it just physically, is it just easier to handle and manipulate the cigarette? Because it looked to me like it would be more convenient just to light a cigar and then just hold it for the amount of time you're sitting there than to keep repeatedly lighting cigarettes and fumbling with boxes and matches and all that I'm, stuff. I'm very well aware of the, uh, the, the well-documented dangers of smoking cigarettes. And I've, I've smoked a few cigars here and there, and I would much rather be a cigar aficionado than smoke cigarettes. I've made that attempt a couple of times, but I always, I always go back to just smoking a cigarette. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a character flaw, basically. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to judge you, but since you, no, since you brought I'll, it I'm, up. I'm trying to be honest. It's, a, it's, a, it's not something that I, I, I would, re- if, I, if I didn't smoke anything, it would be even better. But obviously it's a c- cigar shop, and I, I have enjoyed a cigar now and then, and it would be more appropriate if I was smoking a cigar now. But uh, I'm a creature of habit, and I'm in the habit of when I come in here of smoking cigarettes. And you like what you like, and there's nothing wrong with that. This well, is, I'm over 18. Yeah. Well, this is the Cigar Cast. We invite everyone to enjoy the cigar of their choice, even if their choice is no cigar. Even if they make bad choices. Well, don't we all? <laughs> we could all make a list of that. From bad choices to good choices, that is quite a shirt you've got there. I, I try. I have a collection of these. I just got a new one this weekend. Well, I, I, I bring that up more because I want to talk about the necklace you're wearing. We've, we've had you on the show a few times, and, and we've talked about your book, Glasby's Fortune. We know that you're very into pirate lore. Uh, describe it for the listeners who can't see it, and then is there some significance to it, or is it just something that you found and liked? No, there's a, there is a little bit of significance. I <clears throat> When I was in the Marine Corps, I got to travel the world, so I have coins from Korea, from China, from Germany, from Great Britain, France, Italy, a lot of the places I visited, and they're, they're uh, uh, yuck, yuck of all places. I've got a cigar box full of coins. This was before they were on the euro, so they were all different. <laughs> well, uh, I've, I've got coins from places I don't even know where they're from. So my wife was out of town on a short holiday, and I decided to start stringing up some coins to make a necklace, and I ended up making about four or five of them just... Uh, using the coins from different parts of the world. The the largest coin is a copper penny from Australia from 1945. It's just a cool coin. A lot of the coins I found have sailing ships on them um, or nautical themes like fish or birds, Cayman, Cayman Island coins, for example. So I've there's a way that you can mount the coin without having to drill a hole in it and make a necklace just I've done a lot of American Indian beadwork and I've made a bunch of earrings and stuff so I just I, I made a bunch of earrings this weekend just it's very therapeutic it's like craft work some people make some people knit scarves some people don't I just 
I'm wearing this kind of as a jest because I'll wear it in the poker game tonight as for good luck. Well, in your influence, if you'll notice, my wife is wearing the one you made her in hopes of luck at poker. She has a handmade J original with the coins on it and uh, gave it to her and a matching set of earrings. So uh, I can wear a necklace, but I can't wear earrings because I don't have the uh, proper piercings in, in I've the I've got lobes. a couple of needles out in the car. We can fix that before we wrap it up. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah, the homemade. <laughs> well, so before we get into much, um, I have I seen this article. And I thought only of Trey. And Is this I the one you were share, going to surprise me with? I, yes, I have to share this article. This was a big weekend in cigars. Where are they holding the world champions of cigar smoking now? Darren Chiaffi breaks his own world record in slow smoking. How did um, I know? <laughs> Trey, Jay, so you know, Trey hates this. He hates the slow smoking. But, okay, Jay is the casual observer. What do you think the world record for cigar smoking is for the slowest smoking of a cigar? You know, I don't watch television much. I do watch TV from time to time. I I love to read, and I remember reading a very lengthy article about Chiaffi's prior record, and I want to say it was about five hours and 40 minutes. Is that close? The, he won in Nashville last year with two hours and 50 minutes. Okay, I, for some reason I had... I couldn't figure out how you could take that long to smoke a cigar. I mean, I know that's the point of it. What's the new record? Two hours and 30... Wait, hold on a second. I hit the wrong button. I thought the um, World Champions last year was, was up in the three range. Oh, here it is. You're right. He achieved the longest smoking time ever of three hours, 32 minutes, and 14 seconds. That's a sign of a guy who needs a hobby. See, I said 5.30, but I do remember reading that there was a long article somewhere about this, and it, was, it, it is called the World Championship. Yes, it is. Now, who, who puts all this together? Who sponsors Someone this? with way too much time on their hands. Exactly. The Cigar Smoking World Championship governing bodies, they have, I think the finals this year is in the Ukraine. This guy's David Chaffee's actually from Nashville. Right. He, isn't, he a, isn't he in the cigar industry yeah, as well? Yeah, Principal uh, cigars. cigars. Yeah, I knew that too from whatever I read. But these, the, the only reason I bring this up is because Trey hates this. He hates the concept. What, what raises your ire so about the Cigar Smoking World Championship? <laughs> what raises my ire actually, actually has less to do with the fact that it's people trying to smoke slowly. I, if you want to try and smoke slowly or quickly or whatever, that's your prerogative. But... <laughs> As Shane takes a long, <laughs> slow draw. And to me, it's the pretentiousness. It's the, and it's the intentional pretentiousness of you have to wear a suit, and they sit around, and they study the... Like, if you look at the pictures, it's all people super focused. You're not enjoying the cigar. Yeah, see, you see the picture there. It's a whole bunch of people not enjoying the cigar they're smoking, but just smoking it for a purpose, and I don't feel like cigars should be smoked for a purpose. Well, later in the show, or if we get tied up with Jay in the next show, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about the cigar lifestyle. And this is not a part of the cigar lifestyle that Trey seems to embrace in any way, form, or fashion, the slow smoking. No, I believe that cigars should be a part of your life as a way to slow down, decompress, relax, but... If you're so focused on slowing down the smoking of your cigar, then you're not enjoying it. You're not, therefore, 
using the cigar, in my opinion, for its intended purpose. Well, so going on to the next subject, because this is actually an article I had prepped for mine and Jay's conversation today prior to poker before you called and said we were doing the podcast. Okay. So I'm going to have to have both of you. Jay, you have a useless things to do before you die list, don't you? I suppose. Name a useless thing to do before you die. I can't think of one on demand. Trey, Sky- skydiving? You, skydiving. Useless thing to do before you die. Sorry, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, mine's pretty extensive. I've got dive into a body of water of a knife between my teeth. I have, you know, wrestle a, a grizzly bear buck naked of a switchblade in the middle of the night. I have a number of useless things. Recently, I added eat a blue-footed booby. I really want to eat a blue-footed booby. I really want to eat puffin. Oh, puffin looks good, too. It does look good. You know, it tastes a lot like manatee. It does? Yeah. How, how does that compare to spotted owl? Uh, it, spotted owl is more like a uh, bald eagle. Well, a little gamey. tastes more like a bald eagle. <laughs> okay. So, one of my um, useless things to do before you die. CBS News. Two Texas men die trying to jump their car over an open drawbridge. <laughs> Now, That's a sign that you've watched way too much A-Team. Well, or the Fall Guy. Fall Guy was really famous for the, okay. the jumping open drawbridge. I think, I think I know I read about the Texas guys. I think Nash guys. Bridges did it a time or two as well. I used to, uh, I'm old enough to have had a Stingray bicycle. I tried that. I tried jumping a, you know, a three-foot wall, uh, getting up as much speed as I could and seeing if I could fly from a playground off a three-foot stone wall did not end well how long did it take to get the cast off uh, didn't, i never had a stitch or a broken bone so I, I was fortunate did the wall survive but it was the last time i tried it yeah it's the last time i tried it well so these two here's the problem now these poor gentlemen passed away all my sympathy to their family but i do have to point out i do have to point out what they did wrong so they I'll, were in a nash metropolitan uh, almost, <laughs> almost as bad, they were actually in a Chevy Cruze. Oh, come on. Which, okay, if you're going to jump an open drawbridge, you need... A muscle car. Yeah, you need a sports car. Now, here's the thing. Conventional wisdom would say to get something sporty, fast, and light. But you don't want to do that or you're going to end up making the mistake these guys did. These guys pulled up. One of them held up the barricade. And the other one got in the car, and then he got back in the car, and they tried to make up enough momentum. No, you've got to have a run-up. Right. So you need an American muscle car. I'm going to say a GTO, Hemikuda, something something made of steel. Because you've got to smash that guardrail. Yeah. You cannot just lollygag around about this. That's right. And uh, I can't believe that this man was getting ready to jump an open drawbridge and was worried about dinging his car (laughs) on the guardrail. Well, a Chevy Cruze front-wheel drive, so when he, well, it's also made of plastic, so it, the the barricade probably would have broken the car. There's there's a distinct possibility the barricade could have stopped yeah, the car. You need a you need a, a Nova or something with some substantial weight behind it. Well, I'm just gonna say if you're gonna attempt, if listeners are gonna attempt any of my useless things to do before they die, just drop me an email, shoot me a Facebook message. I'll consult with you for a nominal fee. I'll be happy to tell you how this should operate, so you don't let. You know, end up like these two gentlemen. And also, you want to look as cool as possible. And having your buddy get out to lift the barricade is not as cool as smashing through it. Yeah, that, nobody ever picked up a chick by, hey, buddy, go lift up the barricade. You no. Know, right. Never works out. And all, but what motivates 
people to want to do these things? Because this, they have not said there was anything to do with alcohol. But what motivates, I know what motivates me is I like to talk about it on the podcast. Right. One of the advantages of being my age, I'm 61. Evil Knievel made a living at this, but he did the math before he made the jumps. You know, he broke every bone in his body at least one time or another. There's famous videos of him, but at least at least he did the math. There's there's all kinds of videos of cars and trucks doing this, but it's 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 about math. So to all you young listeners, pay attention in your math class because it could save your life. <laughs> Especially if you're prone to jump over drawbridges. Why do I have to study calculus? I'll never use this. Well, son, one day you'll be trying to impress a young woman, and there will be a drawbridge. Right. First you, you need mass the, times acceleration. You want to know the angle of velocity of... <laughs> Google Evil Knievel and Snake Canyon. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. You know, and that's something that we've kind of lost. I was watching, I'm really showing my redneck roots. I was watching Monster Jam the other night. <laughs> I'm, one of the, I'm probably the only person in this shop that TiVo's Monster Jam. TiVo's it? Yes. Because I, I enjoy watching the monster trucks. I enjoy the freestyle of it. I mean, the fact that they can take a 4,000-pound truck and do a backflip with it really impresses me. Yeah. And also, I was watching Monster Jam the other night, and I had to stop myself and say, Honey, the fact that I watch Monster Jam and the fact that I record Monster Jam does not mean I ever want to go to Monster Jam. (laughs) This this is a veteran married dude move, because I could see her saying, Oh, he records Monster Jam all the time. Oh, they're going to be at Bridgestone next year. Let's go. Let's uh, get tickets for him for his birthday. No, just buy me a nice cigar, call it a day. <laughs> I'll sit at home with There the are some things couch. that you don't need the live show. So Childbirth comes to mind. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that was quite a segue. I think well, we missed the segue, but... No, actually, that, you'd be amazed how good we are. If we practice, we'd be amazing. Speaking of childbearing, your son graduated this weekend... And Mine. one of the reasons I had you on the show is I want you to talk about this gift you made for him. All right. I've mentioned this to uh, a number of my friends here at the cigar shop. One of the first, I'm, I've been a lawyer for 37 years, and I started doing domestic work about 20 or 25 years ago. And one of my first clients had two daughters, and during the course of my representation, he told me that he wrote a letter to his daughters every year on their birthday. And when they graduated from high school, he gave it to them as a gift. And I said, that's pretty cool. So I started doing it for my daughters. I have, uh, I was married once and divorced and remarried and my, my daughter Taylor and Madeline were both given their letters the day they graduated from high school. When I remarried uh, in 1998, uh, our son Joe was born on August 8th, 2000. So I have brought a copy of all the letters I gave to him on Saturday night when he graduated from Franklin High School after the graduation ceremony. My son's name is James Joseph Drescher, but we call him Joe. All these letters are handwritten. They're um, either a page or two, and they were written on or near his birthday every year. And I went to a copy shop, and I had them bound. That's why I brought it with me. It's got his graduation announcement glued on the front and the back. The very first letter 
Dear Joe, 8 August 2000, happened to be a Tuesday. You won't read this until you are 18 in 2018. You were born today. 8.42 a.m. CST, Nashville, Tennessee. Mom is resting from the C-section. We all three arrived here about 6.30, got educated on what to expect, then Dad watched Dr. Fred Frankie pull you out. Simple as that. It goes on to talk about hopes and aspirations, and then each year I would write another letter and stick it in a file about all the silly things he did, the silly things he said, things that you'd think, well, I'll never forget that. But you would. So I'd make notes, kind of keep them in my mind, and I'd write them down. So when he was four, when he was five, you know, the things that he was interested in, learning to do this, learning to do that, trips we'd take, they're all documented in these letters. And then I wrote him a final letter referring back to the beginning about how we hope you be kind, compassionate. In fact, the, the, line, the line that's repeated in the last letter is from the very first letter. It says, quote, I have no doubt you will be strong, honest, kind, compassionate, intelligent, and funny, just like your parents. So there's humor in it, but it is, the thought behind it is to give a, to give a child, your child, a gift of kind of their life history in, in, in snippets as a gift when they graduate from high school is indicative, I think, of how much we as parents care for our kids. One of the things that has struck me as I've shared this idea with a lot of friends and parents, you know, new parents, it doesn't matter when you start. Because as I say, I started with my daughters when they were probably six or seven. But it's such a gift and it communicates to a child how meaningful and important they are to you. Uh, it's just a, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I, and I don't know anybody that I've ever shared the idea with that's done it. But when I gave the letters to Joe on Saturday night, I was the one that was choking up because it, because it, is, it is representative of how much he means to me as my son. And uh, he, he, he respected the, the effort and the thought that goes into it. And it's not difficult. You know, it's once a year. It's a page or two. But, you know, in this day and age, people have blogs. They post things. They share things on social media. They have electronic photographs and not snapshots. But this is, a, of course, the copy that was given to Joe or the actual handwritten manuscript, you know, my, in my handwriting. And it ends, you know, I love you, Dad, at, every, at the end of everything. And what could say more to a child when you hand this to them as to how much you care for them, that you had the, the foresight and the thought to do this? It's not boasting. It's just, it's almost, to me, a no-brainer. I mean, what kid wouldn't? My daughters, when they read their letters, I, they, I could see the emotions on their face. They'd, they'd laugh. They'd start to cry. You know, it's just, it's just a good thing to do for your kids to show them how much you care about them. And that's yeah. why I did it. And, and I'm so glad I did it. Yeah, and this is something that you told me about about a year ago. I think it was the first time it came up. And my daughter just turned 11. And so while late to the game, it's better than, better than nothing. So it's, she just turned 11 a few weeks ago. So the first letter is 
is about halfway through. I, I, I unfortunately don't have the ability. I'm not an author. I don't have the ability to sit down and write it in one go, but it's something that I definitely want to start doing, and there will be more kids down the line. So it's something that I hope to keep up through all of that because it's, I, I am, and, and I, I make no, you know, uh, I, I'm quite open about the fact that I'm the kind of guy, I, it, it doesn't take much to make me cry. So when you talk about being able to give that to him after 18 years, I can only imagine, like, there's so many things uh, that I wish, you know, when she graduated from kindergarten, even though I think kindergarten graduations are stupid, but th- there was so much emotion. Put that in the letter. Well, but, but I just remember being so overwhelmed that day. But ha- having been able to put that into words would have been something that I, that I wish I had done for myself as well as for her. So it, it's such a meaningful gift, for, for especially knowing your personality and knowing that Joe got some of that. You know it's going to be meaningful and something he's going to hold on to. And if he doesn't read all the way through it right now, there will come a day when he's going through boxes and he finds it and he sits down and it, and it means more to him then than maybe it does now. Well, one of the key things, a couple of people asked me if, does he, does he see the letters? And they meant, you know, as the years go by. I made sure that my oldest daughter, when she got her pamphlet full of letters, I said, now, don't tell your sister. And then when I gave it to my youngest daughter, I said, don't tell Joe. Because part, part of the oomph is it's a surprise. Yeah. And, and I asked Joe, I said, Joe, I said, because he's very close to his sisters, especially his youngest uh, sister, Madeline. Um, he, he didn't know it was coming. And that was, that was kind of the, there was a cool factor involved that he didn't know I'd been doing this every year on his birthday. So it's a surprise. But I'll give you, I'll give you a quick example, which I've used with others. When Joe was 13, I'm, so many of, we, we would go to movies and we spend a lot of time traveling, going in a car somewhere. So somewhere along the line, we were in a car and, and I told Joe that I had a coupon for a hotel room. And he, he immediately said, you ought to wait until you can get a hooker. <laughs> now, I would have forgotten that. I would have forgotten that. Whether it would have been in a year or two years, but I wrote it down. Um, do you remember the movie uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Killer? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So we're sitting at the cinema... We were going to see some other movie. He would have been about 13 at that point, right? That sounds about right. And they, go, they always go through all the previews. Sometimes we watch so many previews of coming attractions, I'll turn to Joe and I'll go, do you remember what movie we came to see? And there's a pause, and then you go, oh, yeah, we're here to see such and such. So here's this swashbuckling Abraham Lincoln you know, the rail splitter with an axe, and he's killing vampires. And we'd watch the preview, and at the very end, for some unknown and strange reason, I just blurted out from some place deep in my diaphragm, Abe! And Joe and I would laugh about that all the time. Now, I would have remembered that, because we still joke about how I did that, and people laughed, and a couple people clapped, because it was a full cinema. But it was like Abe the Badass, and it was just funny. There's all kinds of things like that. 
Another example that comes to mind is my son likes to talk about science or physics or computers or the future. Uh, one time he asked me when he was 12, he goes, Dad, what was the Internet like when you were 12? Not realizing that, you know, there was no such thing, at least as far as I knew. So he, we were driving back from Louisville, Kentucky, and he goes, we were talking about something to do with science or physics, and he said, he talked about Stephen Hawking, and he goes, well, you know, he's pulverized. <laughs> and I said, you mean paralyzed? He goes, yeah. But he would do that all the time. And those are things that I would make a note of to put in his letters. And there's, you know, there's not everything is sugar-coated and candy, but it's their life. And it's a, it's a representative of, of how they've progressed as a human being, my observations. You know, it's, the trick is to try to take that love that you have for your kids as you, as you observe their growing. And, you know, if they get in trouble, how they react, what they learn from it, there's a lot of good stuff. You know, some of it's lighthearted and some of it is more meaningful. But if you didn't do it every year, um, you know, you can't remember five, ten years back what things they said and did. And as I read this, I was reminded of things that we had done that I would have forgotten. But it was documented, so, you know, it's, it's like a little journal. Well, it's, you know, don't discount the power of written word. You know, one Christmas I wrote my mother and father both a note, and it was really amazing to them because I'd never written them a note. I write my life. My wife loved letters all the time, and all. And people don't realize when you hand somebody something in writing, the amount of power that really carries. Especially if my handwriting as bad as my handwriting is, I have to type everything. I have to write it out, and then I have to decipher it and type it. But people just I think they discount the power of written word in this society we live in where we all seem to be doing a million things. I, I think they also discount the the catharsis of actually physically writing it down versus typing it. There's a there's a much different energy that goes into sitting down with pen to paper than it does sitting in front of a computer screen with a keyboard. Yeah, when you <clears throat> When people used to write letters, there's there's famous collections of letters. For example, there's 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 books printing the letters, the long correspondence between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson invented a machine that would duplicate his letters because he would keep a copy. George Washington was very scrupulous about keeping his documents during the revolution because he knew someday it would be historically significant and there's volumes and volumes and volumes of all of his wartime correspondence. The, the letters between John Adams and his wife Abigail are still read by historians because they're, they talk about things that were going on in real time about the revolution and about women's rights and other, other issues. But people don't write letters anymore. You know, it's Twitter, it's email, and uh, there, there's something powerful about when you type something, you, you do think and communicate differently than if you're actually handwriting because it's a slower process. So, you know, you have to think about what you're writing. There's a little more thought that goes into it. Um, people often collect letters just amongst their family, like if they have a great-grandparent or grandparent that was in World War One or Korea or Vietnam, the letters that they're... They wrote back and forth. I've, I've bought letters like that in antique shops, you know, that, that are from 1918 or 1943. 
and many people have in their attics, you know, the correspondence between their parents when they were young. They, they might even be love letters. You know, there's something very precious about that because it's so, so personal. You know, so even typewritten or email is just, you know, you click, delete, hit, send, save. You know, it's and it's they're not grammatically correct. There's misspelling, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not saying that this is all grammatically correct or the proper spelling. That wasn't the point. But there's just something very intensely personal about writing a letter. As a divorce lawyer, I can say this, that one of the best things you can do in a relationship is, uh, long after you're married, is to write a card to your spouse and mail it. Just say, I was thinking about you today. I want you to know how much you mean to me. Thank you for this or that. It doesn't have to be page after page, but just, it's like, it's like, flowers, a card, it's thoughtful. It, it goes to show that recipient how much they mean to you. And there's an, an email won't do it. A Twitter post or a Facebook post won't do it. And, uh, you know, letter writing is, is a lost art, and I, I think that's a sad thing because of the importance of it in history and in relationships. Well, we've ran along this segment, but I really wanted to talk about that. We'll probably come back to that before the end of the show. But we need to take a break real quick, hit the cigar under eight. When we get back, we have lots of news, and I promise we'll say something about cigars at some point in this podcast. We'll be back with that and more after this. Shane here with this week's Cigar Under Eight. This week I want to talk about the La Atelier Cigars. Say that five times fast. Yeah, Jay just gave me the proper pronunciation. I call them surrogate cigars. These are amazing cigars, especially for the money. The Animal Cracker is one of my absolute favorites in this line. You really haven't talked about it in a while, but I remember you got on a kick. Well, these are blended by Pete Johnson. They were originally made in my father factory, and he, this is now his own line. These are Nicaraguan cigars. They're amazing, and they they're are... They're very flavorful. They're the fullest of the full cigars. Yes. Um, I was actually looking to order a box, and they have the Animal Cracker in 6x60. I don't know that I could smoke a 6x60 Animal Cracker. I'm going to have to track one down and make you prove that, though. Well, I smoked the other night the Bone Crusher, which is a 5.2x55, and like to have not made it to the end. Wow. It's amazing how great these cigars are, but this is not a beginner's cigar now. Under 8, but not for the faint of heart. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing, it's probably the strongest cigar under $8 in any store you go to. And also, till next week, try the L'Atelier Surrogatis, Surrogat Cigar. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sending across from the inventor of Unleashed, the new energy drink for dogs, Mr. Trey Dedman. Uh, based on the two dogs I have in my house right now, there's no need. No need for energy drink? Oh, goodness, no. Well, think, but think how if much If they could just make sell. a vanishing cream so that they would get out from under my feet, that would be lovely. <laughs> We're also tonight joined by Mr. Jay Drescher, that author of Glasby's Fortune. Still available on Amazon. Trey and I have both read it. I really, really enjoyed it. I've had a lot of philosophical debates circling around the book with Jay. I won't spoil it for everybody, but there's there, there's big philosophical points being made in there that I have to delve into when I get the chance. 
And uh, uh, Trey's got his microphone out. He's he's relaxing, folks. Look out. Oh, uh, I've I've so I've been moving all weekend. So I spent the long weekend, all three days, just moving thousands of pounds worth of stuff. And so my hip and my back are just as tight as can be. And sitting in this chair with three of us at the table has gotten to be where I need to just sit back and protect my back for a minute. Well, before we get back to talking to Jay, I do want to ask you, what do you think of the 2019 I Mule really Kick? like it. I really like this cigar. It's a little bit mellower than the 2018. It doesn't. That was kind of my experience. It didn't. It didn't do anything. It didn't. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't good for me. See, I think it's really good, but I think it serves a particular purpose. Like it's. It's not something that. I don't think you would buy this cigar to celebrate a special occasion. It doesn't have a lot of pomp and circumstance, but it is very well blended. The flavor is spot on. The strength just isn't there, but I'm fine with that. Well, the Don Pepin Blue is always great. Um, if you've not had one, and I, lo- I love it in the El Presidente. I love it in the 9.2 because you get that cool smoke when you start yeah. out. It's really a cool, relaxing. It's like smoking from a church warden pipe. How is the draw on that for Excellent. such a long cigar? Excellent. Just, just the way I like it, like you're sucking through a straw. All right. That's just the way I really enjoy those. So in his day job, Jay is a lawyer and all, does family law. But I do have to talk about a, a political thing and all, the legislation on the cigar industry. Read an article this week from the Tampa Bay Times that really kind of summed it up. J.C. Newman's director, um, Drew Newman, had a great quote. He said, there's no way to comply with the rules as developed. Which is pretty much what the cigar industry has been screaming the whole time. That's really what they're faced with is, there's, you know, they developed this rule for cigarettes and for vape, which I'm adamantly opposed to vaping. Cigarettes I can deal with, but I'm adamantly opposed to vaping. And then they tried to apply them to premium cigars because I, I firmly believe this is a cash grab. This is the FDA making a cash grab. And it's like trying to put a saddle on a shih tzu. It's just not going to work. It might if you fed him a bowl full of Unleashed before you started, but, you know, I just thought I would check. And I'll, Jay, what you're around the cigar shop. You hang around with us and all. What do you think about all the legislation around cigars and what they're trying to do? You're, you're probably further to the left on the political spectrum than Trey and I are either one. Well, we have talked about this a lot. In fact, I think the very first time I was on here, this subject came up, which suggests to me that... Um, this issue has been percolating in some form or fashion now for two or three years, am I right? For about seven now at this point. Well, if I remember correctly, the regulations that you're referring to obviously preceded the current administration. One of the, one of the things that we talk about constantly, and I, I read a lot of history, it's it's the, it has to do with the power of government to impact your decisions or your choices. People would be amazed if they took a deep breath and sat back and recognized, you know, speed limits. I'm, I'm sitting here looking out a window. There's a handicapped parking spot. One of my pet peeves is when somebody parks there that's not supposed to. They regulate water quality, they regulate air quality, all, all good things. But any time the government gets involved in 
mandating something, it has ramifications. Sometimes they're intentional. Oftentimes, whenever government does anything, there's unintended consequences. The, the notion that the government should be involved in telling you what to smoke, when to smoke, how to smoke, it's like, you know, educate our kids, defend the country, secure the borders, regulate airlines. You know, we can't have standard gauge railroad is four feet, eight and a half inches. It used to be that you'd have different gauges of railroad. Well, government steps in and says, no, dude, we're going to have standard gauge railroad so that you can drive a train from one coast to the other. Makes sense. That benefits everyone. It kept one line from creating a monopoly in a geographical location. Yeah, and you, you can't change trains and train cars at the border of Georgia and Alabama and Texas and Wyoming because it just don't work. It makes things go better. But there's, I, I fail to see the purpose of the regulation with the cigars. Who does it benefit? The downs, it's, everything is a cost-benefit analysis. There's mm -hmm. pros and cons to it. I, I can't find any pros to it. All I can find is cons, and I'm, I'm still mystified as to why it hasn't just been, you know, smothered in the crib. Well, everybody says it's to protect children, but children are just not buying premium cigars. We've right. made that point a dozen times. Well, and I think, as we've talked about before, it goes to the fact that the legislators who are bandying this about and the, the FDA who's really kind of single-handedly handing all of this down, they just don't understand the industry. Well, and that may be one good thing that comes out of this is that people, the average person through reading these articles and seeing the news can say, okay, there's a difference in a cigar. A cigar is not a big cigarette. Right. It's, it's apples and oranges. It's two totally different products. You know, the first cigars actually were rolled in the 10th century by the Mayans. There's pictures on pottery of tobacco leaves rolled and held together with string to be smoked by the Mayans. Which, by the way, how did you decide to smoke it? What? How did, how did they decide to smoke? How do, oh. how, do you, how do you see a plant and say... Well, I can't eat it, so I guess I'll smoke it. <laughs> well, it, it does make me wonder if, like like so many things, you know, maybe they just put a bunch on a fire to try and get it lit, and they went, oh, that smells good. I and all of a you, sudden, I, everybody's got a lot more energy. I can give you both a, a perfect example. What lasted 13 years, 10 months, and 18 days? And was completely unsuccessful. We should uh, learn from that. Prohibition. It never works. Prohibition never works. Look at the war on drugs as another perfect example of that. That's what I'm saying. You know, there's a libertarian philosophy that the government... Well, there's, there's, there's been a lot of folks that said in one way, shape, or form or another, the, gov the government that governs least governs best. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to drink whiskey, let them. If somebody wants to drink beer, wine, champagne, let them. If they want to smoke a premium cigar, let them. Don't try to regulate the industry to make it harder for people to buy the products that they want. It doesn't make sense. It does make sense to have a rail line that goes from New York to Los Angeles. It makes perfect sense. It does. It, speed limits make sense. We to may an not extent. like it. What's that? To an extent. What, what's that? Speed limits. Well, look, you don't want you don't want people driving 100 miles an hour through a school zone. No, you absolutely, and that's why I say to an extent. But at the same time. This, you want to talk about your pet peeve being the handicap spot. Speed limits are mine. 
because they were, for the most part, developed back when top speeds and safety features of today were basically like bicycles when you compare them side by side. And they've not been updated. So your stopping time at the same speed has been reduced to less than 10% of what it was at the time. And speed doesn't kill. Erratic behavior kills. But anyway, we're getting off topic. Got to climb down off my soapbox. Well, well in a political in a political system, um, there's a balance. There's a it's a compromise. Right. So, some you know I've I've been in states where they had a much higher speed limit. You know, mm-hmm. like out west. Right. Um, driving 90 miles an hour in Massachusetts is not the same as driving 90 miles an hour in South Dakota or Wyoming. Exactly. And they have higher speed limits in some states. And. Uh, it's, it's all meant to have uniformity to a degree and to provide for safety to a degree. And I guess there's somebody out there that would argue that, oh, we want to make these tobacco products safer. But I don't think that's the agenda. I think there's, I think it's just at some point in time they decided that tobacco was a kind of low-hanging fruit and it was an easy target. But cigarettes and pipe tobacco uh, actually, you know, dip can be very harmful to one's health. But you're not going to regulate how much people dip. Right. You know, it was very popular when I was in college and law school. There's a lot of people that would keep uh, a pinch of snuff. Uh, and then at some point, they quit, they quit allowing it in baseball. You know, but that's, that's, how, that's, how we, that's the society in which we live. There's rules and regulations. Some people abide by it. Some don't. It's all, it's all a balance. And you're always going to find people that say, well... You know, I should be able to drive faster if I want. I should be able to do this if I want. If I want to smoke a cigar or take a drink, I should be allowed to do so. And that's, that's, that's the rub. It's a, it's, a constant, it's a constant squabble about who's going to get to mandate what you do or don't. Well, and I think, you know, I think the big point, because I will say, I, I do think speed limits on the whole should be higher. I don't think they should, they should be done away with completely. But it goes to that point of the consequences for pushing the limit. So if you break the speed limit, you're more likely to X, Y, Z. If you, uh, you know, any number of things, water quality, that has, that has problems. There are no current problems in the premium cigar industry that this regulation is going to fix. Well, I'm a big fan of cliches in part because it's, it's easy to communicate an idea. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Well, another article about people sticking their nose where it don't belong. My golden retriever. (laughs) (laughs) Quentin Tarantino recently, did you see this article this week where the lady at the Cannes Film Festival critiqued Quentin Tarantino? I did not. He was shown after he put her in her place smoking a cigar, so I get to talk about it on the Cigar Cast. Is a victory cigar, I hope? Well, he was talking about his latest movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, soon to come out, and... Whether you like his movies or not, some of these movies I like, a lot of them I don't. It's not really my, my thing. And all but some of these movies I have enjoyed, but he is a modern master. He has mastered filmography. You know, in, in his me, particular style. Yeah, in his style, he's created his own venue. He's done what you should do when you become a master. And a lady said, well, Margot Robbie is in your latest movie, and she has very few spoken lines. How do you respond to that? And he simply looked at her and said, I wish he'd had a cigar so he could have lit it and blew it in her face and said, I reject your premise entirely and moved on. Well, immediately the media took off that he snapped at a, a movie critic 
but really, though, is that not like looking at Leonardo da Vinci and saying, hey, why don't you use more blue in that? I don't think there's enough blue there. Hey, why don't, uh, those your still lifes are a little surreal. Could you uh, could you hear? I mean, why? Why would you critique a master of the craft at, at his craft? That seems insane to me you in know, a rational world. Shane, I'm, I'm on board with you about Quentin Tarantino's films. They're, they are, for lack of a better description, they're unique. Every one of I haven't seen all of his movies, but I've seen enough to know what you're talking about. It's almost like you have to fasten your seatbelt when you when the movie starts. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't like the way he does it, you have to say, "Wow, that's a powerful film." And it's entertainment. It's not a documentary. It's entertainment. Inglorious Bastards is a total farce. And and it's a tongue-in-cheek thing, but it's just pure entertainment. Yeah, it's fun for the sake of fun. You're not you're not going to find people that like it or don't. That's not the point. If he wants to make a, he's free to make bad movies if he wants. If he wanted, if he was an artist and he wanted to paint in all different shades of red, have at it. That's what that's what artists do. And it's not to say, well, you should use more blue. He goes, I don't like blue. I don't want any blue. If you want to paint a picture, you can use blue, but I'm going to use red. That's the way it goes. Yeah, I just I don't get that part of life. I don't I don't get the the, the media. The part that bothers me more than the fact that she said it is that the media just jumped on it like Quentin Carantino's a bad guy because he told this woman, you know, to, that he rejected her premise that her premise that he somehow unfairly treated women. And he's made so many movies with powerful women. He has. He has come under fire for things in his personal life outside of on the set in his treatment of women that I think is probably fueling that. Um, But without getting too far into the weeds on that, I think... I I do think that the automatic assumption... I I think part part of it comes from the fact that he is such a dialogue-driven filmmaker. I mean... He moves the camera well, but he so much of his movies are dialogue driven that I th- I'm looking at Pulp Fiction being a perfect example of that, and and so I can see how if the angle you're looking for is that he's favoring his male actors over his female actors, and you find that one of the lead female characters has fewer lines than an equal male counterpart, I can see how that's where you're going to go. That being said, I think you have to be looking for that angle to find it in the first place, which is why I, I agree with this statement that your premise is wrong. You're you're trying to draw conclusions that aren't necessarily there. But like I said, I do think it comes comes from a place of some of the other things that have come out about him recently. Well, unhappy people hurt people hurt people. That's just the way life works. And this is a hurt person trying to hurt another person. That's the only way I see it. I don't see it. I would never critique, you know, Slash, probably the greatest guitar player of our generation. And all. he, you know, he was not as good as Hendrix, but he's he's better than most that are still around right now. I would never say, hey, uh, I don't, you know, you're... Why didn't you use a minor chord right there? Yeah, why didn't you, or uh, don't you use your pinky at all? Well, I'm going to bring this back. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Um... Because you bring up, this actually relates to the thing about the cigars. 
what if we lived in a, in a country where there was a body, a board, a committee that was empowered by the government to preview a film and they'd take a Tarantino film and they go, oh, you can't do that. You can't say that. And that's the way it was in the 30s and the 40s under Stalin in Russia. And Everything in some countries to, to this day. Well, that's censorship. And we often take for granted what we don't suffer. And we don't live in China. We don't live in North Korea, uh, Pakistan. I mean, I could go on, or, or Soviet Russia, where everything had to be honoring the state. That's not what freedom and filmmaking is about. The government has no say in that. If, if people don't want to put their butt in a seat and watch the movie, that's fine, too. Yeah, let the free market dictate. There's constant controversy about when a movie star makes a political statement, whether it's on the far right or the far left, because it's always one of the two, and everybody goes, well, they're just an actor. They don't have a say. And I go, you know, if Shane, if Shane wants to say something, he can say it. If he became an actor, he could still say it. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to agree to it. There's a reason why celebrities endorse products, because they're celebrities. So when somebody's famous and they say, Trump's good, Trump's bad. There's a bunch of people that throw up their hands and they start to defecate themselves. What? You're an actor, you're an actor. You know. Well, so what? If Quentin Tarantino wants to make a statement about race into Django Unchained, let him. If you don't want to go see it, don't. If you don't want to smoke cigars, don't. But don't let the government tell you what cigars you can smoke. That's the whole point, I think, of what you're saying about the cigar regulations. If people want to smoke cigars of different qualities and different varieties, the more choice, the better. That's a free market economy. When you start restricting it, that's when you get into trouble because you're you're, you're overstepping your bounds. Yeah, it's it's a form of censorship. It is. It's a form of censorship, and it's a, and it's only successful if you let it be. Well, and that's what I think. That's what we've seen a, a lot of uh, cases, and you could probably speak to this more than I have, but there have been a number of cases that have either gone to high courts within states or even the Supreme Court where an activity is protected under the First Amendment as freedom of expression. One could argue that smoking cigars is a type of freedom of expression. Now, to what extent they're able to regulate that freedom expression is, is kind of where you get in that gray area. I don't think that would be the approach we would take to getting it overturned, but it kind of, it all comes down to censorship. You could make an argument, you being, you know, ubiquitous, an argument could be made that cigarettes should be illegal because it causes health problems. But that ain't going to work. It won't work. The tobacco industry, people want to smoke. Let them. It's on them. They can do it. Well, a step beyond that. Okay, if we're protecting the children, how many people, do you think a child has his first beer or his first cigar first? Well, I'm pretty certain it's a beer. Yeah. But the beer industry goes, goes on. They're allowed to advertise on NFL football, you know, they sponsor big NFL teams, they sponsor big events and all that. Why? Why are you, if you're protecting the kids, then protect the kids from the danger, not from something that's perceived. We have such a pervasive alcohol culture in this com- country, and it's something that I'm, I face daily. 
And now my struggles are different than most, and I'm I'm fully aware of that. But we have such to the point that if I were to go up to a coworker and say, "Hey, you want to step outside for a cigarette?" There's no there's no assumption that everybody smokes. There's no assumption. Well, oh, you don't smoke? Why not? But in the the American culture, if someone says, "Let's go out for drinks," no, I don't drink. Well, why not? I mean, your face. It's we are so just accustomed to that alcohol culture that I don't think we'll ever see that go away, whereas smoking just kind of came down, even though the long-term health risks are basically the same. Well, that's why I mentioned prohibition. People wanted to enjoy a cocktail. They wanted to drink, and the government, the Ken Burns documentary about prohibition is really, if you've never seen it, check it out. It's very very eye-opening, and it has ramifications for all these things. Part of my job as a lawyer is not to complicate things. That's a myth. It's to simplify things. And the question when it comes to tobacco use, alcohol use, even marijuana use, even recreational drug use, is at what point does the government get to tell you when you're either 18 or 21 that you can't do that? That's the conundrum. That's the balance. And I think that we should have learned from prohibition is that there are things that can be potentially harmful, but you have to give people the freedom to choose. And we value individual freedom in in this country to a degree that most folks don't recognize it. I have been to other countries where personal freedom is very strictly and very draconian, draconian, it's enforced in draconian measures. And um, that's not what we're all about. And we should really, value that and try to perpetuate it because it's what gives us the ability to, to, we're free to make bad decisions. That's what it boils down to. We're free to make bad decisions, but it's not on anybody else. It's on us. We were all teenagers. I know that. And people don't like being told what to do. They don't. It's human nature. Well, moving to from one publicity campaign that is terrible And I want to talk about one that's going really well. I got two more things I want to hit. I know we're running long tonight, folks. But there's two more things that I just got to hit or I won't be able to sleep tonight. All right. McAuliffe Cigars. Has anybody in the cigar industry come on stronger than McAuliffe Cigars in the past 10 years? They are doing an amazing job. They sent me, you know, I showed it on the show and I use it as my card marker playing poker. And I have a McAuliffe Ambassadors coin and all that they sent me. Now they have a closed Facebook group just for McAuliffe Ambassadors, and they, they're doing an outstanding job. There was an article on Half Wheel that they're about to add three sizes to their portfolio, and they're going big. I mean, they're going the um, Reserve Toro is 6 by 52 MSRP $37. McAuliffe's not known for the expensive cigar. No, they're really not. But they've created three different sizes. The Migdalia Corona Extra, 6 by 46 $9. So that's back more to their regular line. But McAuliffe Cigars, I just I, wanna, I wanted to stop the show and just say congratulations. That's a great yeah. marketing that they have been doing. It lately. really is. It's just kind of amazing. And I'll, but I want an update on the new book. I want you to l- update the listeners on the new book. Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to write a sequel to Glasby's Fortune. It's going to be called Glasby's Pirates. It involves some of the same characters, and it picks up sort of toward the end of the first book because I I can envision a 
series of books, whether it would be called the Glasby Chronicles or the Glasby Saga, that goes all the way through the American Revolution, and I'm still writing about pirates. And they're, they're, again, this is funny to me anyway, there was never a group of people that, there's so many myths and stereotypes about this, we talked about this before, where they, somebody told them, you can't do that, and they go, uh, yes, we can. You know, they, they rebelled against authority. They would do what they wanted. Now, we've romanticized it to a degree where, you know, they're, they're swashbuckling Robin Hoods, but they were, they were thugs. They were absolute thugs. But they didn't like being told what to do. And what I'm trying to do is take these characters from 1722 and bring them all through because so many of the things that we wrestle with are they're common themes in human behavior human history about empires about money about slavery about women about everything you can think of and it doesn't matter when a if, if it's a good story it doesn't matter when it takes place it could take place at any point in time during you know during the roman era during the greeks because people behave in the same patterns and with the same motivations. Greed, avarice, lust, power, violence, compassion, kindness. It's part of the human condition. That's what good stories are made of. So I'm at the point now where I've written over 100,000 words, but I'm still not sure where it's going to finish, and I haven't been working on it as dil- diligently as I should. But I'm eager, to, I'm eager to get through the first draft so I can go back and rewrite it and try to make it for the next book and the next book because I love the process of writing so much. It's so much fun. And I get to do research. I was showing uh, Trey and Shane a book I bought recently about, about slang uh, and, and the way they talked, the way they behaved. But they're, they're, they're really no different than we were. It was, they just lived in a different time. You know, we have all the technology and everything, but... These people were, uh, they, they could sail around the world with a compass and a sextant and a sailboat, and it would take them a long time, but they did it. They did it. It's, it's incredible. Some of the things they did are incredible. Well, it's, it's super interesting. I'm, it's interesting to me to get to know somebody that writes books, because I know you had another book and you laid it back because you decided to write another book about pirates, which I'm very glad for. And I'll, I really enjoy, you know, the character Valentine Ashplant. I really enjoyed that character. I really enjoyed his perspective. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you're writing a book more featured on him at this point. Well, this isn't a spoiler, but the very first line in the rough draft is, uh, quote, Valentine, end quote. Then it goes on to say, he was talking to me. My name's Valentine Ashplant. So Glasby is the narrator of book one. Valentine Ashplant is the narrator of book two, and who he's referring to is Bartholomew Roberts. When Ashplant leaves Roberts off the coast of Africa, he and another character in the first book are going to go on and have their own adventures, so that's where the book picks up, but it's told from from Ashplant's perspective. Well, super exciting. I can't wait for you to hurry up and get done with it, so get to work. (laughs) And all the poker players are gathering. It's getting time for my triumphant return to the poker table. So until next week, we're going to wrap it up here. But uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. You can drop us an email at info at thecigarcast.com. We're on facebook.com slash thecigarcast and Instagram and Twitter at thecigarcast. So before we go, pronounce judgment, Mule Kick 2019. Not as good as 18, but definitely worth picking up.
the Don Pepin blue and the El Presidente size, it's a it's a solid seven. It's the rare wow. seven. That's a, that's high praise. It's it's perfect. It does everything you want a cigar to do. It tastes good. It lasts a long time. You can relax and really enjoy. I knew we'd have Jay on tonight, so I chose a longer cigar because I know I wouldn't be talking as much. <laughs> so, but really enjoyed it from beginning to end. So thanks, everybody, for listening this week. And until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. Mm-hmm.